I'm Alex Mosed, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle to fight back and win against big tech. I'm really pleased to have uh, Applico partner and CTO, Tree Tran, join, join us today. Tree, great to have you with us. Awesome. Glad to be here. Just to brag a little bit about Tree's background, Tree knows a thing or two about food. We're going to talk, uh, we're going to talk about some of the news with Instacart and, and what they're trying to do um, with some new revenue uh, stream initiatives here. But Tree knows a thing or two about food because he co-founded and was CEO of a company called Munchery. And uh, while at the helm of that company for uh, over six years, he raised over $100 million for the business. Why don't you describe what Munchery was doing, Tree? And, and, and it's, it's such a great story uh, um, of how you were building that company. Munchery is a, was a platform connecting local cooks and chefs with consumers. Uh, so, you know, instead of going out to restaurants, uh, you would get food made, home style kind of meals. And we pioneered the whole, you know, um, platform with each chef with their own menus and you ordering it. We do fulfillment, we do delivery, we do on-demand delivery, we do schedule delivery, um, got all the pick and pack tech. Uh, so yeah, we're very, uh, very much uh, leading the pack there during our times. You know a thing or two about, you know, marketplaces, food. And ultimately, you know, the, the, all the challenges that go along with that, particularly in these B2C food businesses. So, you know, one of the new things that we just saw recently announced was Instacart's kind of aspirations to look at monetizing from advertising revenue much more aggressively. What was some of the background and, and kind of recent news that came out there? Yeah, I think um, there's some data that has been mentioned in the article, um, basically saying, hey, 20% of their revenue is coming from advertising. Uh, so to the tune of what, 300 million uh, worth of, of revenue from ads, which is really a, a great start. You know, I, I guess that's been the critique, right, of Instacart is that uh, hey, look, the business is growing. Their GMV is going through the roof, particularly during COVID, but they can't make any money, right? And they, and, and, and they don't touch product. They don't actually take any inventory over the product. And, you know, they're, they're an intermediary, which is great. And they've got a lot of volume, which is great. But even with all the COVID volumes, it was reported that, that even with all of that, they were just able to to break even. So that's why I guess, you know, this advertising news, this story that came out recently is is such a big deal. I think all the investment that have gone into Instacart for sure is betting more than just Instacart, you know, moving food products and, 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 and whatnot to consumers home. Right. It has to be more than that. Uh, and obviously the aspiration for marketing advertisement and monetizing that, um, I'm sure has been the goal uh, much earlier on. It's just been taking a while to actually get here. Uh, but hey, look, COVID and the pandemic uh, causing the ramp up in consumer using the platform uh, really rejigger the, the, the whole uh, initiative and say, hey, how can we juice this up and, and make more out of it? Saying that they're trying to grow this thing to, I guess, a billion dollar top line revenue, right? But that I guess comes with some challenges and just the role of these retail partners and the traditional way advertising has been done with these grocery retailers. What do you make of that? Billion dollar, big target. Obviously, Instacart's trying to hype this up. 
and 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 they're trying to IPO in the near future here. How much of this is? Yeah, I could see that happening. Or yeah, maybe this is a, a little. Maybe they're getting out a little a bit ahead of their skis here. Well, look, the team there has been incredible, right? They they've grown the company really, really uh, tremendously to date. Whether this whole pandemic, uh, well, and all that. So look, I, I think you know if they put enough effort in it, I'm sure they'll get to that billion dollar at some point. Uh, so that's not the concern. I just see challenges to get there uh, that they would have to solve. Uh, so if we dive into that, um, you know, I think the, the few toughest challenges I see is that consumers tend to use um, Instacart for quick transactions. Hey, I need to get my cereal, milk, eggs, uh, you know, apple, whatever order for the week. Can I just get that in and, and be done, right? Get in and out of the app within a minute or, or less uh, even. Uh, so it, it's more for quick transactions, not so much browsing and shopping around the way a consumer would walk into a physical store and, and be able to see a lot of more products uh, in front of them. And they kind of, you know, make the trip worth it. <laughs> They're already there at the store. Might as well take a look at some products as I walk to, you know, retrieve what I normally get. Um, so I think product discovery is, is probably not Instacart's strong point. Um, and to me, advertiser would want a more of a product discovery experience to make it more effective, uh, you know, to place product placement and say, hey, you know, have you considered this product, that product? Uh, pause for 30 seconds here, read up about this new product. Why is it, you know, different or better? Um, so until that experience is more geared towards that and not so much of, I just need to get my milk and eggs and be done. Um, it's going to be harder to, to get more traction with people actually, you know, finding these these advertised products to be useful. So I think that's a, a big challenge for Instacart and, and they definitely, uh, I'm sure, would you know have to, to deal with that. The other challenge I see is, OK, so if you make it more product discovery and takes longer to shop, that can be detrimental for the conversion rate that Instacart would want people to, you know, check out and finish paying for, for a transaction and not, you know, drop the ball uh, or, or abandon their cart or whatever, because now they have to consider two, three other options. So uh, that's that's the, uh, you know, uh, stuck between a, a rock and a hard place kind of situation where you want to, yes, improve your ad uh, business, but at the same time, you don't want to be a bad partner to the retailer where the conversion rate it would drop or reduce it in some fashion. Lots of interesting points in there. So, you know, where you were saying, yeah, a lot of these consumers are in and out of the app in one minute. I mean, that's, uh, that's, I mean, that's impressive. Um, and I feel like, I feel like, uh, Jeff Bezos also had a, had a similar stat when, you know, maybe in one of his departure letters, right. Where he was talking about, Look at how fast people are just checking out on Amazon. Look at all the time we're saving, you know, people from going to the store. Actually, I think that was one of his uh, calculations for for value that that Amazon is creating, right? For for the world, how fast can people check out as as a key criteria? And then even even Instacart's deck, you know, in this article is saying twenty five percent of sales came from products that people buy at least ten times. Um, which I, I think they're actually kind of using that stat to 
to, I guess, downplay the the, the repeat purchasing. And then they also say 70% of sales come from items displayed in the top line of Instacart's app. So, you know, I actually think they're trying to get out in front of exact of exactly what you're getting at, right? They're trying to say, oh, look, yeah, people, people just kind of buy what's at the top of the thing. Um, and uh, if we, I guess, just if if we sell the spots for what goes at the top of the list in the app, then voila, you will make more money brands. But it 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 may not be that simple. And ultimately what that'll do is that'll that'll actually detract and take away from the retail partners if conversion rates go down, um, if drop off goes down and so on and so forth. And frankly, it actually doesn't even hurt Instacart that much because they don't really make that much they make revenue, but they actually don't make that much profit from people just buying groceries and, and, and purchasing groceries, right? That's kind of the whole impetus for why, why this advertising push is such a big deal. So that, that's kind of the funny irony in all of it. Yeah, obviously the margin for ads is way higher than having to shop for a product and deliver them. <laughs> so that has a big, big cost component. Anything else on, on, on kind of the Instacart topic? And then I think, you know, it'd be interesting to talk about some, some of what the Instacart alternatives are that, uh, that, that we're seeing in the space. Yeah, I think, you know, what the article has mentioned is I'm sure the right things that they have to uh, deal with, which is collecting more demographics data, uh, what are the trends of people buying, and, and those are valuable things that all advertiser would 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 want, right? So I think right now the system is probably in its more you know nascent or infancy state, so it doesn't have as much data. But I expect the team at Instacart to to have to beef that up to make it more attractive. Yep, and and maybe you know I think maybe what you're getting at is um, there you know Instacart's obviously they're trying to go public. There's a uh, you know if they want to go public and have a successful IPO. They have to be able to show some success in these areas, but there is a lot more competition, uh, not just from the Amazons of the world and the Walmarts of the world, which which have been making significant investments in 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 grocery and digital delivery. Target was shipped also, but we are seeing other technologies that are trying to level the playing field uh, for grocers because now. You know, it's 2021. This isn't exactly earth shattering technology anymore. What, what else are you seeing that, that grocers are trying to navigate towards um, and maybe looking at kind of Instacart alternatives? Yeah, I think uh, the most common um, complaint, I guess, uh, a retailer may have when working with Instacart or similar companies would be, hey, Instacart now own the customer relationship. And, and the retailers now have handed that over to, to a third party, uh, Instacart in this case, obviously. So uh, that, that is something they, they um, refrain against or, or feel a little bit reluctant or, or maybe quite reluctant uh, and, and want to find ways to get that back. Uh, so you would see, you know, well, if they're still working with Instacart, they would want to make it like, hey, can you hook in my loyalty program so that they can still track uh, the consumers and what they do and whatnot. But I think otherwise, um, you know, retailers are, are looking at other options, uh, similar to how you see general e-commerce, general merchandise, uh, using uh, a tool like Shopify to set up their own shop. 
Um, obviously, that requires some know-how, IT system and whatnot, and so some folks may be reluctant to do that. And then, uh, of course, there are you know great companies like Shop Hero that us, our team at Applico here knows well. Uh, you know, Act is that equivalent e-commerce uh, white label, uh, you know, e-commerce provider for for uh, retailers who are looking to hey own your own brand. Uh, own your own customer relationship, uh, and of course, you know, have full control on on what they do on the platform. Yeah, I, I think we're, you're seeing this in grocery. You're seeing this with uh, restaurants, right? Toast and a lot of these kinds of, yeah, I don't know, the point of sale providers, or you know, they're providing different solutions for restaurants. You're you're seeing, I think, a lot of uh, different, for example, restaurant ordering apps to to, to escape the grasp of Uber Eats. Um, or DoorDash that are less onerous in terms of owning that customer relationship, less onerous in terms of the fees that they charge, more of a partner to the retailer or the restaurant as opposed to a, 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 a classical kind of marketplace that disintermediates the supplier from the customer and, you know, grabs all that value, right? That's kind of this, this second wave of, a, of what you're getting at like like the Shop Hero example, which is like a grocery-specific Shopify, which is a great way to describe it. And you're seeing it on restaurants as well. The drawback there is that typically those solutions don't have as much scale. They're not going to bring as much pure play demand to the retailer or to the restaurant. Um, and so the restaurant is is, you know, is getting maybe a similar technology solution without as much of the the network value, but maybe that changes as as these things grow up and 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 get more traction since they're a little bit newer generally to to some of these spaces. Yeah, I think these retailers would keep leveraging their physical present. I think that's the the, the thing, right? They know these consumers are lightly local consumer. We're not talking about something shipped in from far away here. Uh, grocery food, restaurant food are all pretty, really local. Uh, and so they, they're going to lean on, hey, look, these consumers eventually will walk into our store, will walk into our restaurant um, and, and have that experience as well. So they have a lot of leverage. Uh, and look, uh, you know, they're going to have to look for provider who would give them the whole solution instead of just tool A and tool B because then they would need to have a team to you know bring together all the tools and of course a retailer or grocers or whatever they're not set up to have such an IT team you know uh, behind them especially not the mid midsize or smaller ones for sure uh, so for them uh, you know they would be reluctant from from anything but a full-on solution uh, for, for their online, you know, commerce. Ultimately Instacart is, is, um, you know, is not a tech monopoly yet, but, um, the market is certainly seeing a lot of competition out there. And, and, and I guess, you know, the, the good thing for the grocery retailers as opposed to the restaurants is, uh, the former group has benefited greatly during COVID and the latter group has really been hurt. And so, you know, the latter group probably doesn't have as much um, wherewithal to, you know, to to um, sacrifice uh, going with, you know, kind of less demand or a partner that's not bringing as much demand. And, and these grocers, I, I think, 
do in many in many regions uh not all but many uh given that proximity and and certainly the the kind of covid bump right no it'll be exciting to see how things develop you know surely over the next 12 months here well tree always great to have you on thanks so much for joining us today that's uh tree tran partner and cto at applico and um a great update about what's going on with with all things food and, and food marketplaces thanks again tree awesome thanks for having me okay so Next and last topic, kind of series of a couple topics, is um, antitrust. Now, this is more direct, more squarely going up against uh, the tech monopolies. And so there's actually been a lot of developments. I spoke maybe a couple episodes ago about um, these series of bills that were introduced um, in the antitrust subcommittee, which is actually ultimately a part of the Judiciary Committee in the House. And talking about, you know, those different bills, breaking down the bills and what that means for um, the tech monopolies and our fight, which will ultimately win, making progress. Uh, This is a great step in the right direction uh, for these different pieces of legislation. There are six now in total and how that's going to help level the playing field against big tech monopolies. So, um, the NAW here, which is the National Association for Wholesalers, uh, just released a press release applauding the legislation uh, addressing Amazon's anti-competitive conduct. What they are applauding is that um, you know these bills have now been brought to a vote in the House Judiciary Committee, and some of them have now started to be passed. And uh, you know, so, not only were they introduced into into the subcommittee now they've actually started to be passed um, by the judiciary committee and then that will help advance them uh, to the floor of the house of representatives and then from there they have to go to the senate and and ultimately the the president so it's still a long road ahead but all very positive steps in the right direction this press release is is more specifically focused on amazon um, who i actually think amazon has Amazon really has, I would say, the most vulnerability to this legislation because Amazon has the most uh, aggressive tactics to compete against its third-party sellers. When you when you take a step back and you look at what do these platforms get into trouble for, it really comes down to the platforms uh, competing against their third-party sellers and taking advantage of their third-party sellers. What's actually been so great to see generally in a lot of these bills, not all uh, the committee members, but a lot and enough of the committee members have recognized that these platform businesses have two customers, not one. Consumers, yes, but producers, more importantly. And the producers, the suppliers, are the customer group that get taken advantage of first and in the biggest way by tech platform monopolies. So when you look at Microsoft's case in the 90s, what is it that Microsoft got in trouble for? It wasn't that they were disadvantaging consumers using PC products. What they got in trouble for was vertically integrating and competing unfairly against third-party app developers on the Windows operating system, namely browsers, right? So when Microsoft was favoring Internet Explorer over other uh, third-party browsers, that's a great example of 1P versus 3P. Microsoft favoring its own product versus third-party products. 
And um, that's a that's a big no no for for platforms, right? That goes against the very ethos of the platform business model, which is there to do what to facilitate the exchange of value between consumers and producers, right? That's that is literally the definition of the platform business model. I would know uh, as the co-author of the book, the defining book, Modern Monopolies. So um, Amazon ultimately has, I think, the most exposure because. Amazon competes the most aggressively with its third-party sellers, and uh, they've actually published reports detailing, you know, how much 1P they have versus 3P. And when you look at, you know, the other tech monopolies that have exposure to this, you know, I think it goes from Amazon to, you, you have five, you got FAMGA, right? You got Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, Apple. So I think it goes from Amazon to Google to Apple, frankly. And then um, some mixture of Facebook and Microsoft. Facebook um, censors its third-party creators, which is completely inappropriate and unacceptable. But again, in terms of of favoring its own 1P products against its third-party creators, it actually doesn't have as much exposure there. And Microsoft has learned 20-plus years ago to stay away from that. So they've also kind of steered clear of some of these waters around unfair competition against third-party producers. Um, So let's dig a little bit deeper into what's going on and why you can actually see the fear uh, in the eyes of these tech monopolies. So what are some examples here? This article in the New York Times just came out. uh, Tech giants fearful of proposals to curb them blitz Washington with lobbying. And basically what it zeroes in on is Tim Cook calling up Nancy Pelosi. Not clear if Tim Cook called Nancy and other members of Congress, but it's saying specifically Tim Cook called up Nancy Pelosi and said, this is going to have terrible consequences. This is going to hurt consumers. This is going to cause all these issues, yada, yada, yada. Um, Wow, Tim. Scared much? Not a good, I mean... Not a very confident thing to do, right? Tim Cook calling up Nancy Pelosi. What do you think Nancy Pelosi's reaction is? Oh, wow. Yeah, man, Tim Cook. We, we really got to really put the kaputs on, on these bills because I, I, th- I believe everything Tim Cook is telling me. Or do you think Nancy Pelosi is saying, wow, this guy's really scared uh, and, and kind of patting herself and Andrew Cicilline, the chairman of the uh, House Judiciary Committee, uh, on the back here. Another example of, um, of, of some fear and panic is Apple actually put out this 16-page report called Building a Trusted Ecosystem for Millions of Apps. And uh, it basically talks about the important, the, literally, the important role of app store protections. 16 pages of gibberish talking about how the by Apple controlling the App Store, um, you know they protect your phone from malware. Uh, this did not play well in the press. The information here saying Apple's malware red herring, um, and uh, you know saying that the real issue is the thirty percent commission the company charges for developers. I'm going to get to that in a second. You even you got Ben Thompson here saying, you know, again, similar kind of thing. Why is Apple focusing on this? Doesn't really make much sense. Apple just kind of looks like it's, uh, uh, you know, blubbering fool in all of this. They look weak. 
Tim Cook calling up Nancy Pelosi. Their executives executives look aloof and just like liars because they're testifying. They don't know how profitable the app store is. Um, and then you got them publishing this bogus malware report saying, oh, we got to we only can have one app store because um, we protect your phone uh, from from viruses that way. Yes, there's an issue around the commissions they charge the uh, app store developers. I would say the other complaint, which they've gotten a lot of heat about and we've covered multiple times on the show, is Apple's unfair regulation and censorship of third-party apps. And they have done this um, from a uh, censorship of kind of content and information on apps that they don't approve of, which is inappropriate. And they've done this to favor Apple's own products. We spoke about Tile, where Apple um, restricted Tile from, from using certain APIs and then Apple literally launched a Tile competitor that used those same APIs that Tile wanted to use. Apple didn't allow Tile to use them. Uh, Tile was testifying in front of Congress. And then the day before they testified, Apple launched its literally copycat product. Apple's just completely botching this um, from, from just about every angle. Um, and I think it just goes to show you that generally uh, the the management from these non-founder CEOs is lackluster, to put it nicely. Um, yeah, Tim Cook is a great operator. He's operated the hell out of that company. You got Warren Buffett over there praising Tim Cook. Tim Cook is botching this, okay? Yeah, he's running the show and incrementally improving a golden goose that Steve Jobs handed over to Tim Cook. What innovation has Tim Cook driven inside of Apple? Apple services? Buying Beats? Launching Apple TV? It's a joke. There's no real innovation coming out of Apple. And then you got this guy just weak calling up Nancy Pelosi. Another failed uh, tech monopoly CEO that has incrementally improved a golden goose, goose handed to him by the founders is Sundar. You also got Sundar here. Uh, you got this hit piece coming after Sundar in the New York Times. Google executives see cracks in their company's success despite record profits. Um, they're saying that Sundar is basically a weak leader. I would agree with this. I've called Sundar a weak leader on Bloomberg television. I predicted that Sundar would cave uh, in the Australian dispute where Australia uh, government was putting the screws on Google News to pay the publications, Google threatened to leave Australia. We can clip it for you on Bloomberg saying, Australia, call their bluff. There's no way they're pulling out of Australia. Sure enough, Sundar caved, Google capitulated, and they are now uh, paying extra monies to uh, media publications in Australia and have now basically given a recipe for other countries, uh, country governments, for how they can help do what? Level the playing field against big tech monopolies. Um, Sundar is weak. Why is Sundar weak? Another example of why Sundar is weak. He has allowed a union to persist and grow inside of Google. Like uh, Google doesn't have um, 
you know, uh, uh, warehouse workers like Amazon does. Does Amazon have a union? No, Amazon doesn't have a union. Does Instacart have a union? Um, even though there's been multiple attempts by Instacart employees um, to try to start unions. And Instacart has thwarted that, which as an executive of a company, do you want a union in your company? Plain and simple, no, you do not want a union in your company. Sundar, weak, has allowed the union to persist and grow. It's a distraction from the company's objectives. And, and, and this article then goes on to talk about um, Sundar's failure to be decisive. Um, Sun, you know, the, the Google executives were thinking about buying um, Shopify, which would have been a genius decision for them to try to get into e-commerce uh, much more aggressively. But Sundar thought it was too expensive. Um, and now look at what Shopify is worth today. And, and Google now is ultimately partnered with Shopify um, at the end of the day. So um, these are operator CEOs. And um, similarly, I mean, what innovation have we had come out of Google in the past few years? Um, you know, they tried to do social networking. That failed. Um, you know, the Android, I'd say probably what they're doing with cars is the most exciting thing. But again, just nothing too earth shattering. And I think you just have these um, operator types that, that, that have not been able to fill the shoes of their, of their founder predecessors. Um, Facebook, on, on the other hand, still has Zuckerberg. And Microsoft, I will... Uh, you know, Satya, I think, is an exception to the rule here. Satya has done a brilliant job of innovating, breaking into Azure and, and cloud services and has continued to push the needle um, with how they're either using M&A or breaking into new models. Uh, so Microsoft and what Satya is doing is, is definitely an exception to this um, and, and a bright spot here. And, and they've also steered clear from a lot of these regulatory things. Amazon, another good example. Is Amazon showing weakness? No. Instead, Amazon's saying, great, come sue us. Amazon faced 75,000 arbitration demands, and they say, great, come at us. Come sue us. Well, drop the language in your contracts because they were forcing arbitration on their sellers, and they're dropping that, and they're saying, great, come sue us. You know, they continue, and they're trying to buy MGM. Amazon's not slowing down, and... Again, it's a testament to, I think, the culture, the executive team, Andy Jassy, uh, uh, Jeff Bezos is now successor. Um, two very different, I think, kind of leadership styles, company cultures, when it starts at the top uh, and how they're both addressing this, this regulatory and legislative and antitrust environment and also just kind of innovating and building out new business lines and new products. Um, couple other examples I want to call out here, which, um, oh yeah, so they're talking about the lobbying. So one of the people they're lobbying, which gets called out in this article, is this guy, Senator Mike Lee, out of Utah, who is actually on the Judiciary Committee and is, I guess, a detractor uh, from... From these antitrust, you know, tech regulation initiatives. And so they're saying, you know, he's, he's someone that's getting money uh, from these, uh, you know, these big tech lobbyists. What's 
what's interesting, and this is this is the, just the madness of politics, but look at one of his top contributors is Uline, a B2B distributor. Uline, one of his top contributors, who is definitely anti-Amazon, is funding this guy, Mike Lee. I'm sure Uline would not be too happy. Sure, they're, I'm sure they're not happy because I'm sure they're reading this. Not happy to see Mike Lee's name come up uh, as taking money from big tech. And just goes to show you, I mean, that is the risk with how successful these bills will actually be. Will these bills make it all the way to be signed into law? Will all of these bills be, make it all the way to be signed into law? No, there's no way. Hopefully, will some of the bills be signed into law? Yes. Will the bills be watered down by the time they get signed into law, if they get signed into law? Absolutely. The point is, these are a step in the right direction, and we need more of this kind of stuff, not less. There's been a lot of detractors, even in the media, that are saying, oh, um, you know, these these bills, they don't know what they're doing, and, and we should wait to see what the regulators do, and and the legislators should stay, take a step back and... It just goes to show you that, you know, there is significant risk here with what what the term is regulatory capture, which is when, you know, uh, big tech or, or the, the big traditional uh, enterprise gets so powerful that the regulators um, essentially regulate the monopoly to, to continue being a monopoly. You could also apply that to legislative capture, which is, you know, from the, the politician side of this, not the regulator side of this, to say big tech is so big, they've got so much money with these lobbyists, they've got so many hooks into the system, that is the system incapable of effectively operating. And that is the, that is the big risk here on both, on both the legislative side and the regulatory side. Big tech is so big. These are literally Microsoft just hit $2 trillion market cap today. Um, will the system not be able to work, uh, you know, totally purely because that's not possible. There's a lot of corruption and just there's too much money. But will the system be able to work at all? That's the question, right? And will any of these bills be able to make it through, even if they're watered down? That's an open question. And how long will this take? Years, by the way, it's not not happening in 2021. This is going to take a long time. Um, so it needs to be a full frontal assault from regulatory to le- legislative, and then just pure good old private enterprise and competition, and just individuals, con- consumers, and producers taking action in their own little way, day by day. All depends on the focus. What the U.S. regulators have have done time and time again is just kind of miss going after the jugular. It takes years to make these things successful. So when you take your shot, you better take a good shot, and that shot better be focused and dialed in in the right part of the business model. And so far, U.S. regulators have just failed to properly understand the platform business model um, and where the tech monopolies apply pressure on fairly and, and ultimately where they make their money. That's what you want to go after if you want to affect change. So we will see. I'm still very optimistic and I think we're actually seeing a lot of really positive developments in the fight to beat big tech and level the playing field. Thank you very much for joining us on Winner Take All. I will talk to you later.